Before we get started, I just want to let you know about a fun event coming up that you are all invited to join. Veritas is teaming up with young Catholic professionals to host an Oktoberfest from 4 to 7 p.m. on Saturday, October 28th. Everyone is invited. Families, young adults, older adults, children, to this joy-filled evening of faith, food, and fellowship. And we're going to be joined that night also by Catholic Answers apologist Joe Heschmeyer, who wrote the book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus. He's going to give us a talk on the Eucharist. So come out and join us. It's Saturday, October 28th at the Italian Center in Stamford. For information and tickets, go to veritascatholic.com. Click on the events tab. All right, today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop dives into some of the causes and effects of the Protestant Reformation. And you may not be surprised to know that we face certain similarities today. So stay tuned to hear all of Bishop Caggiano's thoughts on that. We're on your radio at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or we're on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is at your phone's app store or on veritascatholic.com. If you're listening to Let Me Be Frank on the app or on podcast, be sure to rate us, review us, give us five stars, and help us to reach more souls. This show is brought to you thanks to a sponsorship from Foundations in Faith. Foundations of Faith focuses on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good to see you, my friend. Hey, Excellency. Yeah, it's it's very challenging, very sad to see so much bloodshed in the Middle East. Uh, Before we do anything else, we certainly have to pray for peace. And we have to pray for, you know, some resolution of what is has been such a difficult c- circumstance for all these years. But the fact that um, innocent people were just taken and and butchered and 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 kidnapped and murdered in front of their relatives. I mean, it's barbarism. It's just it's it's evil. It's evil. And evil never justifies evil. Never or never yes. justifies anything for that matter. It's just. It's just so hard to believe that in our own age, people act that way, right? Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. horrible. We have to pray for peace. And and we have to pray in some way, shape, or form that Israel can certainly protect itself and the Palestinians' aspirations can be met in some way so that they could be two nations that live in peace with each other. But for yes. now, it's just, um, yeah, it's just awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I must tell you, I must tell you, I often don't get very much like emotionally involved with the news. But, you know, when you hear that little children were taken in cages and shipped off as hostages. Mm -hmm. Now, could you imagine when your children were five or six years old being put in a cage and being, I mean, it's one thing to have political issues, but it's another thing to act like an animal. That's basically what that is. Yes. Yes. 
There, right. That's right. There is a right way and a wrong way to do things. Yeah, this is clearly yeah. wrong. Right. It, but yeah, just yeah, unbelievable. Any okay. So now let's we pray for that. Today, what I wanted to talk about. Did you have any any suggestions before I plunge in? I am uh, waiting with bated breath. Are you? I already told you you're, you're fooling <laughs> yeah. people. No. no, what I thought we would do is since we talked about the patristic era, I think we should talk a bit about the Reformation era Yeah, and the rise of the Protestant churches and ecclesial communities and to kind of ask ourselves some basic questions. What lessons could have been learned, should have been learned, and, sh- and what lessons can guide us not to make the same mistakes what, five yes. centuries later, right? So first and foremost, when we speak of Protestant churches, of course, we're talking of the 16th century, right? In the 1500s. Yes. And it just didn't happen like overnight, right? The split in the Western church, which is different from the split between the West and the East, which ca- occurred almost five centuries before. Yes. There were many factors involved. And as we go through the list, it, some of it is very reminiscent. Some of it is, is eerily reminiscent of what the secular culture is trying to do for the church now, hmm. it's trying to do to the church. Because okay. part of the rise of the Protestant churches in, in their historical moment was due to political forces. It had nothing to do, well, I shouldn't say nothing. It had not totally to do with ecclesial issues, right? It was the interference of politicians. Fascinating, hmm. no? Hmm. So the very, the very word Protestant was used for the very first time because the princes of Germany were protesting against the church. In the, in the Diet of Spire, the Gathering Council of Spire in 1529. So it wasn't Martin Luther, was Ringley or Calvin that used the term. It was political leaders that used the term. Hmm. Interesting, right? So if you were to say, okay, what has history taught us about um, the, 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 the causes of the, of the breakup of the church, right, of people leaving? Well, the first thing is unity is not a theoretical concept. Unity has to be lived, right, in 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 real terms. And some of the things that that occurred, the use of Latin began to fall away in the secular world, right? The the rise of the vernacular in the common life of people was one was one of the factors that led the use of Latin in the church to become, uh, I'm going to use the word problematic, right? That there was no longer a unifying factor because Latin was not a language used in ordinary life. And canon law, which basically held a lot of the Western world together, was replaced by secular law, and secular law was different from place to place. So two issues, language and law that held the church together began to weaken, right, for a few hundred years before there actually was a break. Second is, we went from the divine right of kings and how the kings were subject to the Pope, remember we had that conversation, to now political leaders having no vested interest in the church and promoting its unity. In fact, they wanted temporal authority and they want to take it away from the church or the church's interference in temporal affairs. How is that different from what we have now, where the secular world yeah. basically wants the church out of education, out of healthcare, all the rest of it, simply because the civil authorities want to control all of those aspects of life? 
Okay, then there were demographics. So we spoke about the Black Plague almost a couple of years ago. Yes. 1347, 1349. Can you imagine within two years, 30% of the population of Europe died in two years? And how a moment of crisis that would have been for those who were not catechized well, who did not have a personal relationship with the Lord, all right, it would have been an earthquake. Right that would have started to distance people from what the church teaches and the liturgy that it offers because they had not had that encounter of Jesus Christ. Once again, why are we talking about an encounter in Christ all the time? Because if you if you have a, if a long enough time occurs where this does not happen among the quote-unquote believers, they no longer are believers. <laughs> right, yes. And, we've, and we saw what happened. The other interesting thing is two other things about general po- of general demographics. The first is the rise of the cities. And you may say, well, what difference does that make? It makes a profound difference. Even in our own age, if you look at the church and how it's lived in rural areas versus the church lived in urban areas, versus the church lived in suburban areas. It's not necess- it's the same church, but it's not in the lived experience. Quite the same thing. And the, the further, now this may be an odd thing for me to say, but the further you go away from the land, the more you are tempted to become secularized. Hmm. And in this case, as the cities, as the People began to move into the cities in the in these ages we call the Middle Ages, and a middle class began to grow. Then you had right the peasants and and the middle class, and then you had church leaders, many of whom were noblemen, and you could see how the divide occurs between the two. Hmm. Right. So again, economics and demographics also played a part. The Renaissance played a part. We had that episode not long ago about the Renaissance laid the seeds for the secular culture in which we live, the shift away from the divine to the human and the celebration of the human person, for which there is nothing wrong with that. But it's not an end in itself. But the Renaissance, both in artists and musicians and and even in philosophical schools, began to emphasize the human person to the lack of attention to the divine. And you began to begin to say, well, what do I need the church then? All these crazy priests and what are all the things that they're talking about? And then the, one of the greatest factors we've spoken about before was the printing press. The printing press in a growing urban environment that had the Renaissance as his backdrop with the political leaders who didn't see the unity with the church as a value or even affiliation with the church or to use the church for its political purposes in a time when the unity among people, either the use of Latin, the use of canon law, was beginning to, you see, it was like a perfect storm to cause the Renaissance to occur, right? So one of the questions I want people to ask is, do you see any of those factors in the 21st century? Do, do Am I, like, I sometimes wonder to myself, is it just me? But are these, and if they are present, what, how, how do we unmask them before we become subject to those forces doing harm to the unity of the church? 
Yes. Right. And call a spade a spade, whatever it may be. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it would be naive to say that the Protestant churches arose simply from external forces, because that would not be true. There was plenty to look at at the life of the church that was, um, how can I put this, that would in and of itself been a reason to say, are these people kidding? Mm -hmm. <laughs> For example, by the time Martin Luther was nailing his 95 theses, right, way before that, you had a papacy that first was in Avignon, right, for almost 72 years, had left Rome, and it weakened the papacy tremendously. Then you had the Western Schism from 1378 to 1415, and what that was was that there were three men who claimed to be Pope at the same time. Could you imagine? <laughs> plus, to add all that, just talking about the papacy, plus on that, many of the popes were not, let's put it this, textbook definitions of moral life. Right, and Netflix has more than amply identified all those weaknesses. I'm not going right. to go into them. <laughs> okay. So, when the leadership of the church, right now, you may say, "Well, well, the Pope who in the Middle Ages, like who would even know who the Pope was?" This is true. I mean, it's not like you have social media in the modern world mm -hmm. where everybody's under scrutiny. Right? But the bishops too, right? One of the greatest problems in the episcopacy in the Middle Ages was absenteeism. They weren't around. Hmm. Right? They gathered the benefit from being the bishop and the benefits that came from that, but they were never in their diocese. They never went to visit. They never, no, nobody ever saw them. Right? Plus, there was nepotism. So your nephew became your successor or your uncle became your successor. And, and how prepared was he and how well did he believe? Right. Right. So you say, well, the bishop, who sees the bishop? Uh, 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 really? Even now they may say, who's the bishop? I had, had a woman <laughs> come up to me, I told you a few months ago, in the supermarket. Did I tell you this? Right? I did tell you this, right? Yes. And yes. she said, Bishop Lori, it's so good to see you. <laughs> I said, <laughs> yes. I said, it is good to see you too. <laughs> and I said, let it be. What the heck? <laughs> but, I mean, and this is modern contemporary times. Imagine in the Middle Ages. Yeah. So, so then you say, well, the clergy. Oh, my gosh. The clergy, too. I mean, the seminary was an invention, essentially, of Trent, of the Counter-Reformation. Priests before Trent oftentimes were trained by their bishops. You would take up residence in the cathedral and the bishop would train you or delegate it to others. So you could imagine in some places it was tremendously good, other places was very weak. You had the phenomenon of the simplex priest. And the simplex priest was a man who was trained to celebrate mass, so he knew how to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure in most cases he could even hear confessions. He could mm. give the absolution, the formula, but he would not have been, because he wasn't educated enough to do that. So there was a lack of education among the clergy that was startling in some places, not all, in some places. Then many were morally weak. Right? Again, the struggle of celibacy is 
because priests <laughs> were not only were they married or had mistresses, some of them at least, that they wanted to pass on church property to their children. Mm-hmm. And then, believe it or not, in the Middle Ages, there was the opposite problem from what we have now. In many places, there were too many priests. And there wasn't enough work for them. <laughs> huh. Right? So so you say, all right, so the priests, I see the priest at Sunday. But... And then the laity were not also totally immune to difficulties. Many of them, perhaps with no fault of their own, didn't have an opportunity to learn the faith. Uh, moral life was lax in many cases. The Eucharist was infrequently received, if ever received, in a person's life. Most people did not know Latin, so they came to Mass. They had precious little understanding of what was going on. So inside the church, there were all these factors as well. And and you imagine if people, again, in the contemporary church say, well, you know, we have issues, we have problems. But my goodness gracious, I mean, and it's still the same church coming out of the Middle Ages into the Reformation. There, there were significant challenges on every level of the church, as I said. All these forces on the outside, all of these conditions on the inside. And the only thing you needed was the match hmm. to begin the process. And could all of that have been avoided? Of course. Of course. That's why I keep talking about the one. Because if we are truly encountering Christ and we accompany each other in faith, I'm going to go out on the limb and the historians are probably going to write nasty letters to me. But that all could have been avoided. The entire Reformation could have been avoided. Because a lot of what the Reformers wanted would not have been there in the first place. Everything they saw would not have been there in the first place. Right. So if there are five lessons to be learned, right, they are, these are it, number one, that the importance of spiritual vitality can never be underestimated in the life of the church to keep the church holy, united, and evangelizing. It's our single greatest priority to get to heaven. Number two, knowledge of the faith or lack thereof has enormous consequences for the church and the knowledge for everyone. And not the knowledge I got in second grade when I received First Holy Communion and Confirmation. I mean, as adults, to know the faith, all the faith, and nothing but the faith, essential. Number three, we have to be able to name and confront the corrupting influences upon the life of faith. And every age has them. Mm-hmm. And right now, there are echoes of the Reformation insofar as the political influences coming into the life of the church, if you think they are benign, think again. Okay. Number four, the importance of disseminating knowledge of the faith, not just having it, but disseminating. So the church did not use the printing press effectively in those early days. So now, six centuries later, with social media and all these other venues for communicating, it is an essential obligation of the church to use them effectively, but to use them in such a way that the church doesn't betray its own nature and mission in trying to communicate. 
And the other interesting thing is um, the proper understanding and exercise of authority is key. So when those who rule the church, if I could use that language, become princes more than servants, you have a major problem. Yes. And you don't have to go around with robes and diamonds to be a prince. You have to live a comfortable lifestyle, be unavailable to your people. And quite frankly, as St. Augustine says in his instruction on pastors, really feed off the sheep rather than feed the sheep. So when I reflect on this, it just gives me great pause because the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, And thanks be to God in the internal life of the church for all the difficulties we have, we are nowhere near where we were in the 16th century. Nowhere near, thanks be to God. But the influences on the church are more subtle now. They're more destructive now than they were because it's very hard to combat what you cannot see clearly. And we've talked about that before. So the fact that we need to be reflective now is extremely important. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. So we have time still, yes, for the break? Yes. Break? All right. So who is the yes, match? Who is the match? Martin Luther. Correct. Born 1483. He died 1546. He was a friar from 1505 to 1517 and then became an ordained priest. Last 10 years of his life. Now, one interesting thing about Luther, actually two, if I may make. Number one is that it's clear that no, at no time did Martin Luther intend to leave the church. At no time was his intent to break the unity of the church. Now, let's think about that for a second. How many people in the modern world right now who are trying to reform, quote unquote, may personally have no intention of breaking the unity of the church, but in fact, if they keep doing what they're doing the way they're doing it, they will in fact be standing with Martin Luther. Let's think about that for a second. (laughs) Isn't that a sobering thought? (laughs) Yeah. Right? The second is Martin Luther had a personal crisis. He was looking for the personal assurance of salvation. He suffered from a scrupulous use of penance. Mm -hmm. Right? And then eventually in 1514, he heard this lecture on Romans, and then it hit him, what St. Paul said, that the just man lives by faith. And so he had a moment of, of like conversion where he always saw God as a vengeful God, a God who seeks justice to one who is being merciful, right? And therefore, in Martin Luther's religious imagination, the church had been emphasizing good works for so long, for so much, and if you don't do them correctly, then, and if you don't do them amply, and if you don't do it with good conscience, then you're, you're condemned. He began to say, well, the other half of the equation, but the faith is key to salvation too which is true, and relying on Christ's mercy, which is true. But then he began to move towards a position that contradicted the church's teaching, and that began the break. And that is, 
for Catholic theology, man is damaged, but not corrupt. For Martin Luther, based on his own experience personally and around him, and what I just described, mm-hmm. it's not implausible to say, but where, where are the good guys here? <laughs> right? That man is corrupt and depraved. And therefore, baptism doesn't radically change that. Rather, God's mercy covers over man's sin because we're like a wreck. And that began to, that began the seeds of breaking the unity of the church. And unfortunately, political leaders saw in him a wedge to take advantage for their own political purposes to break the unity of the church. And then it began a process, right? Right. So sola scriptura, which we'll talk about, um, the loss of the sacraments being seven. It just began this whole process, right? Yeah. That continued to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't it uh, uh, interesting, Excellency, or maybe a, a, a warning as you're saying, you know, the church obviously was in need of reform mm-hmm. at that time mm-hmm. um, of bad habits, but the way it ended up happening was really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And as you're saying, you could say maybe Martin Luther had the right ideas. He didn't want to leave the church, but look at what one step leads to another step. Correct. If you are not in line with. You see, in the end, this is my read of it, and I could be wrong, but my read of it is Martin Luther unleashed a force he could not control. Mm-hmm. Because, and again, not to demonize the political forces at work, but all those princes, the first ones who began to use the word Protestant, they sensed their moment to take control. And once that began, once politicians begin to interfere into the life of the church, even with the best of intentions, you are going down a very dark path. Yes. Because they are not vested in Jesus Christ, no matter what they say. They are not, period. Yes. In which case, you don't cede to them that. And unfortunately, once Martin Luther began this, it wasn't for him to cede. They just took took it and ran. And then other theologians began to say, well, what about this? What about that? Predestination for for Calvin. Zwingli Mm -hmm. rejects the whole idea of bishops. He speaks Mm -hmm. of, right, the negative test for scripture. And doctrine, the Anabaptists reject infant baptism. In other words, once the magisterium is not your anchor, then anything can go. And that's exactly what happened. And to this day, among the Protestant denominations, their understanding of a magisterium in many ways um, has, or lack thereof, has created the situation where Protestantism continues to fragment to the point where you could have an individual church be its own church. Yeah. So uh, then, Excellency, let's let's take a break, and on the other side of that break, we'll come back with some of the some of the details like sola scriptura and sola fides and all that other stuff that happened as a result. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be right back. 
If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. We're talking about the Reformation that happened in the early 16th century. And uh, Excellency, you were going to get into some of the uh, particulars. Yeah, well, I, for example, in Catholic theology, we hold that the, the inspired sacred scripture okay, is the principal font of revelation. And the living tradition of the church, right, since the, since the closing of the canon, continues to explicate, right, help us to understand, magisterium be the authentic interpreter of both. And therefore, right, revelation, with the death of the apostles, the revel revelation in and of itself is complete. All right. Now. One of the consequences, and of course, this is, again, this has echoes to the modern world within our own church. So if you eliminate the bishops, therefore you eliminate the magisterium, how do you hold those two fonts together? You don't. And how do you decide what scripture actually, what the revelation that comes to us through the sacred scripture, what it's actually telling us? How do you decide that if you and I disagree? Right. So the sola scriptura arose in part, right, simply because the magisterium was, was literally being discarded, discredited. And the idea that over all these centuries, all of these additions, all of these um, non-essential practices, prayers, customs, myths arose. So you're telling me, because these were the reformers, you're telling me that this is authentic Catholic simply because the bishops have said so. What happens if the bishops are wrong? So we know the scriptures are inspired. We all agree on that. So that's all we're going to live by. 
scripture, whatever the scripture says. Okay. Now, what's the difficulty in that, my friend? Do you the, see any difficulties? There, there? are thousands mm -hmm. of different interpretations for same mm -hmm. scripture verses. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And there are historical errors in the scriptures. Right. Because what type of genre, literary genre, are we talking about when we talk about the scripture? Right. Plus, there are practices in the Bible that in the New Testament are not permitted, such as having more than one wife. David had more than one wife. So how do you justify, if it's only scriptura, that the scriptures themselves don't necessarily agree, if they're all inspired? Right. <laughs> right? So the understanding of scripture that is part of this tradition, the echo of, the tr of scripture, guided definitively by the magisterium, is what holds the Catholic faith in its purity and unity. And therefore, the, the reformers, again, unleashed forces that could not be controlled. Same thing in liturgy, that could not be controlled. And to this day, in an age where my life is all about me, it would seem that this is the age where Protestantism should thrive. But in fact, it has significant challenges in the contemporary world. Because in the end, if, if, if I'm the interpreter of scripture, then in the end, why do I even need scripture? <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is what the secularists are telling us now. I'm spiritual, so what do I even need your scriptures to try to figure out all this violence and polygamy and all this? Stuff? You could keep it. <laughs> So these are some of the questions that I want people to reflect on. Now, from a Catholic point of view, these are the questions that Trent needed to address. Yes. What is the understanding of the human person post-original sin? How do you see the human person having fallen from grace and personally keeps falling over and over and over and over again? How do you see the majesty of God against that? Or the merciful love of God against that? Or the incarnation and the mystery of the Lord's death and resurrection right, against that? That's a fundamental question. Now, Catholic theology answers it. But my question to our listeners is, what do you believe right now? Like, what do you believe in your heart of hearts right now? Mm -hmm. The second is, we just talked about it, is the, the magisterium. That division breeds division. The magisterium, even if the occupants of the magisterium are not optimal, present company included, okay, nonetheless, the divine institution of the magisterium is absolutely essential. And therefore the church has to be able to articulate that in such a way that a person understands the function and office, even though the occupant of the office may not be the person you would have chosen. So in the Reformation, because many of the bishops were lax, some were even corrupt, 
the institution and the person occupying could not be distinguished and out it went both. But for us, right? So Trent is very clear about that. And therefore the celebration of the sacraments doesn't depend on the holiness of the celebrant. Mm -hmm. right? The third is the role of sacred scripture. And, and what's interesting in my mind is that it is the fundamental font, and yet among Catholic Christians coming out of the Reformation, it's almost like every action is an equal and opposite reaction, <laughs> right? And now it's time to say, well, wait a minute, though. Do we, in fact, use this in our prayer and life to grow closer to the Lord? And that's going to be one of the major issues we'll talk about in the one in the next coming, in the next few years, right? So the fourth is, how do you deal with abuse? Hmm. Right? How do you deal with laxity? How do you deal with the problems? How do you deal with you know, the moral lapses that people fall into? And quite frankly, where Trent did a tremendous job, right? because it authorized a catechism. It authorized the creation of seminaries. In the end, it, did, it made a lot of structural changes to ensure that the causes of all of that would be addressed. Yeah. And Robert Bellarmine is a perfect example. Unless my memory fails me, Robert Bellarmine founded the Roman College, which was basically the seminary of Rome, and a towering man to do it. Um, the other, of course, is the political influence. Now that, there, the church has continued to struggle, to be very honest. In part because there are certain circumstances the church cannot change, right? But has to deal with those circumstances. And, and others because those subtle, those forces are sometimes subtle. Right? And the other thing too, and this is another lesson. If you look at the Protestant Reformation, you look at the teaching of Martin Luther versus the teaching of, of Calvin versus the teachings of Zwingli. Steve, what, what would you say characterizes the progression from one to the other to the other? Uh, gosh, uh, maybe more, uh, more individualism? That's one way to describe it. Uh, the word I would use from a Catholic point of view, generically speaking, is that they became more extreme. Hmm. Right, they became more and more away from what would have been Catholic teaching, Catholic liturgical practice, right? Sacramental understanding. The more you passage, the more extreme it became. Right. Okay. Now, don't answer the question. Just think about it. Where do you see that tendency in the 21st century? And it's not just in the liberal camp. There's once a person says, I think I know better than X, <laughs> whoever X happens to be, mm -hmm. there's always the tendency to take your position, which could be very legitimate and very true and very wholesome and very important and very needed. And without the anchor, you could start drifting further and further into more and more extreme positions. And sooner or later, something's going to break. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent was called. And the Council of Trent was called to deal with all of this upheaval and to finally address the causes of the Reformation, at least the causes within the church itself. So it taught clearly, clearly, right, our sacramental theology. It taught clearly our understanding of who Christ is, which was defined in Chalcedon. As I said before, it authorized the formation of a catechism Right? It's, it's, it's doctrinal, it's conciliar teachers are foundational for us today. Right? When it called for the renewal of the clergy, Trent was very clear that the ethical standards by which priests and bishops are to live are uncompromised. They created seminaries to, seminaries to make sure that the clergy was educated and morally formed correctly. One of the great outcomes of Trent was a rise of many religious congregations that were designed to either reform the existing congregation or to create a new impetus to be able to do what? To go out into the world, right? To teach, to evangelize, to preach. And they insisted, all right, on a, a discipline of life that was beyond reproach. And then in the spirituality, in the devotion of the liturgy, they gave birth to prayer books. They gave birth to missiles that people could use at mass. And Eucharistic devotion, interestingly, Eucharistic devotion blossomed in Trent and beyond. And Eucharistic devotion has always been one of the ways to renew the life of the church, which is happening in our age as well. So not to get too much into the details, the truth is what the church did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is address the root causes within itself of why it gave rise to some who became, quote unquote, what they called the reformers. And Trent was masterful at what he did. And the popes that came after them were very much devoted. So you talk about uh, a moment that where the church really kind of it was, was, was shining. Yes. It was, I think, then in response to what happened. But of course, one could say, why did it have to happen after all that? <laughs> why couldn't you have done it before it happened? That's another question. And I guess only God can answer that question. <laughs> one of the other, other benefits though, Excellency, of a time of such turmoil as led into that is mm -hmm. the rise of great saints. Oh, oh, exactly. So exactly. like, yeah, like you said, uh, Robert Bellarmine, but Ignatius Loyola, Charles uh -huh. Borromeo, Philip Neary. Francis Xavier. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Thomas More even uh, shortly mm -hmm. after that. Right. So. Exactly. And we don't have a shortage of our own age either. Yes. We don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is certainly well, a time if, of if you see our, If you see the beginnings of the difficulties we have as coming out of World War II, then you have people like Maximilian Kolbe, we have Mother Teresa, we have yes. John Paul II, we have John the Twenty-Third. I mean, you could go on and on yeah. of the saints that we have in our own age. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we have religious life being reborn in many ways. Yes. New congregations growing dramatically. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And we are paralleling Trent in so much as we're using modern means of communication to convey the, the content and beauty and meaning of the faith where in the coming out of the Reformation was the book, and now it is the digital platform, in addition to the book, in addition to radio and all the other things that, right. that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The mm -hmm. difference between the people who stayed faithful in the 1500s and the people who broke off, and today also, is that we are tying ourselves to the wisdom and the guidance of the church. Correct. Correct. So what are the lessons coming out of the Re Reformation? Lessons that are going to guide our work now in the one. Number one, right? There are a number. Number one, no substitute to clarity of teaching and understanding the faith. Number two, every member in the church is called to be morally and spiritually healthy. Number three, prayer is the foundational bedrock of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we speak of truth, beauty, and goodness to encounter Christ, it's not one or one or one. It's one and one and one so that one has a, a living, prayerful, spiritually dynamic relationship with Christ. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it would seem to me now, it would seem to me that um, the one before there is the crisis, has to be our single greatest priority. Because I don't want to see the church undergo any further divisions. Yes. And it's almost like a ship. You could hear the creaking. Right? You could hear things cracking because people are becoming more extreme, more strident, too many people have a savior complex in our church, mm -hmm. which in the end, there's only one savior, so let's get in line. And quite frankly, in the end, I think we have to be honest with the forces that, are, that, are, that we are facing, name them and confront them and not be afraid to confront them. You can't accommodate a culture that says it has no room for God. There is no accommodation to that world. You can dialogue with the world, but you can't accommodate that world because you're accommodating yourself on sand. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, before, before we end the topic, this, it's, I'm just curious. For our average listener, language, words make a difference. And when we speak of the Catholic Church, when we speak of a church that is Christian, that means something very specific versus an ecclesial communion or community versus a sect or a cult. They don't mean the same thing. And just for the record, so that everyone can chew over this, right? by church, what we mean in Catholic theology is that the central reality is the Eucharist. Right, the Eucharist that is the true, real, enduring presence of Christ. Right? That is what makes the church the church. It's the Eucharist. Right? And that revelation of salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, right? we talked about scripture and tradition, and leads us to the sacraments, and especially the Eucharist, is what makes the church the church. So the culmination of the church is the Eucharist. 
and everything else I spoke of makes us who we are. So then by that definition, who are the churches in the Christian world? Well, we are. Mm-hmm. The Orthodox are. Mm-hmm. right? They are true churches. And there are some, I was going to say divisions, some forms of Anglicanism that may actually be a church, right? Because to, to, to be a church, and therefore, scripture, tradition, revelation, sacramental life, leading to the Eucharist, needs a validly ordained priesthood. If you don't have a, a valid priesthood, you don't have the Eucharist. Right? So, so when we speak of Lutherans, Methodists, we speak of Baptists and all the rest, those are ecclesial communities. Mm-hmm. In Catholic theology, we don't call them churches. Yes. And it's not to disparage. It's simply to make the distinction that from our perspective, there isn't a valid celebration of the Eucharist in those communities. There isn't the continued unbreak, unbroken line of succession, apostolic succession in priesthood. Right. And many of them don't even have priests. They don't refer to them as priests. Right. right? They refer to them as ministers. So there are elements of, of Catholic faith there. All those elements are good, but it isn't the totality of what you would have in a church. And it's mm-hmm. it's the church, right, Excellency, that that unbroken line of succession from the apostles. Mm-hmm. That's that's what Paul is referring to when he writes to Timothy and says that the church is the pillar and the bulwark of truth. It's not all these various branches started whenever they started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess the question is the elements that the ecclesial communities have, those elements are true and they're valid and they are good. It's really a question of not having all the elements. Yeah. Right? So for the the fact that a Methodist minister will preach on the Gospel of St. Luke, well, the Gospel is still the inspired word. Yes. And he is offering... Uh, insight into the faith that could be very efficacious to the people he is, right? Yes. In that sense, a priest would do the same thing from the pulpit. Yes. But when the service ends and there isn't communion, a reception of the body and blood, soul, and divinity, it's lacking something. Right. Yeah. Tremendous, yes. essential, fundamental. Yes. Right? Yeah. Right? So that's really what we're talking about. And the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council, wanted to celebrate the positive elements with, with our Protestant brothers and sisters in their ecclesial communities, right? And the whole idea would be, is there a road that can bring our Protestant brothers and sisters right, back to the place where all of this began, where yes. all the elements were present, right? And that's a question I don't know the answer to. Yeah. Yeah, because that would... Uh, I mean, Jesus prayed to the Father in in John. He said, "I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one." Right. So, by God's right. grace, we'll get back there again. Right. Right. Yeah. And of course, then there are sects and cults, and which have nothing to do necessarily with with any real legitimate branch of Christianity. But they're often based on a charismatic leader who considers himself to be divine and inspired, rejects everybody else, membership in the in the in the community is controlled, and they use the most. I mean, I was going to say inhumane, but Mm. 
you you meet people in their greatest need and you just manipulate them for your own purposes. Yes. And unfortunately, there are some sects and cults that cons- they speak of Christ and being Christian and but but all mainline Christianity. Right? So the churches and the ecclesial communities would say that has nothing to do right. with Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. But we've heard what happens and the atrocities of what happens, right? Yeah, they end disastrously. Right. right. And there's mm-hmm. still some out there today, as right. you're saying. Yeah. Right. So, so in a sense, Steve, I guess for us, we recognize that the church needs renewal. The Reformation can help us to understand some of the issues we still face today, but can give us the playbook and and by which we could help to bring greater life and renewal to the church before there is another break. And quite frankly, I have many friends who say to me, Frank, the break already happened. All those Catholics who stopped coming to Mass, all right, they didn't formally join something else except the secular religion, if I could, but they're already gone. So in a sense, you are no different than the Council of Trent era, where you got to respond now to what happened because it has already happened. Mm. And that's sobering. I'm not sure if, if I absolutely agree with that, but we are, we are not where we were 60 years ago. And to rebuild, I think the experience of this 16th century can help us in the 21st century. And quite frankly, I think what we talk about the one, many of those lessons are incorporated in it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, pray, I pray we all have humility and docility to follow the truth. Oh, well said. <laughs> well said, my friend. Okay. Well, so on that note, then I'm going to end. <laughs> if I got a well said, I'm going to go to break. <laughs> uh, we will be right back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. <laughs> hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency. So this question came in through our website. Um, So I'm always pitching, you know, email us or send it on social media, but somebody went right to our website. They submitted a question. You can do that as well, obviously. So here it is. It says, Bishop, why did you not attend the Synod on Synodality? Oh, that's easy. I wasn't invited. <laughs> Simple answer. Actually, so, uh, yes, explain yeah, how that. does it work? Yes. So, so the Episcopal conferences chose delegates, and I was not chosen, right? There was, I think, like Cardinal Dolan, Bishop Barron, uh, Archbishop Broglio, and I forget who else. So those are the official delegates. Okay. Then the Pope names his own delegates, and they come from different countries as well. So there's only a few because I think the participants may be around 400, a little less than that. Okay. I forget ex- what the exact number is. But you're talking about the whole world. Right. Right? So 
what we really what really happened i think for the bishops who were selected is that you had the established you know the established leadership of the conference and then you had a former president and bishop Barron, of course does a tremendous amount of work in evangelization and then the others who were chosen so i think there's only about six or seven americans there who are bishops yeah so i didn't make the cut <laughs> but <laughs> well <laughs> And let me tell me, I just say for the record, to go to the synod, like I went to the synod on, on youth, is very difficult hmm. because it's time consuming and it's time well spent, but it's time consuming and you still have to run the diocese in between hmm. everything else that's going yeah. on. Oh, it's a lot. It yeah. is a lot. Okay. And for yeah. these poor bishops have to go two times oh, my this word. year and next year. It's a lot. And, yeah. and and the idea is they're representing the the ideas from the whole conference here. Kind of. So. Yeah, I, I, kind of. I think they're also just representing themselves. Okay. You know, what, what the because this whole idea of this first session here is just to listen to what the promptings of the Holy Spirit are. And notice there's no communiques. There's nothing. Right. Yep. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com, or you can go to the website. Uh, Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And um, we want to thank our sponsor, which is Foundations in Faith. It's a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization that makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, we've got um, a roster of guests who have asked to come on over the next oh, couple of months. So yeah, it's going to be uh, exciting uh, for our listeners and, and for me. So Yeah, good. And you don't have, you don't have to hear my rambling. Good idea. It's a great idea. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Uh, before we go, would you please give us your blessing, Excellency? Of course. Of course. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, as we always do, for the gift of our faith and for the abilities and capacities to rise to the challenges before us. We ask that your Holy Spirit bless us and all who listen to the podcast and all those whom they love. Help us to be joyful faithful, and courageous. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Hey, my friend, enjoy the week. Thanks, Excellency.